0: Welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Well, I have a question for you this morning. I want you to think of someone that comes to your mind right away as soon as you hear this phrase, so and so is on a mission. Uh, you may not even know the person, you may just know about them, but I- this statement would be true about them. They are on a mission. Think about this and take a few seconds to just share with one another who might have come to mind at this point. Wherever you happen to be watching this, just reflect on that for a moment. And if someone's there with you, just share it with them. Now I want you to rethink that question again, but this time I want you to limit yourself to someone who is 20 years old or younger, but about whom you can still say, wow, that person is on a mission. Probably a little bit harder, right? I'll tell you, my mind went to a 20-year-old named Greta Thunberg, a Swedish environmental activist. At the age of 15, she started spending her Friday afternoons at the Swedish parliament, outside the Swedish parliament, to call for stronger action on climate change. One year later, at the age of 16, she was speaking at the United Nations uh, Climate Action Summit. And in her speech, a phrase, how dare you, was taken up by the press and incorporated into music. Now, whether you agree or disagree with her particular mission is beside the point. There's no question, though, that she was on a mission. Now, it's not only individuals, but corporations and organizations that have mission statements. Hospitals have them blazoned right where you enter them for the first time. Hollywood produces movies about mission. I remember watching the original black and white versions of Mission Impossible way back in the 60s when I first came to North America. And very early on in each episode, you remember that classic sentence, your mission, Jim, should you decide to accept this? Now, in all of these contexts, missions has a positive connotation. Whether we agree with those individual mission statements or not, the activity of mission, in speech, in action, raising money, exhorting people to join the mission, all are appropriate per se. The M word is a good word. Now, as soon as you change the context to religion, though, the M word becomes a bad word. We only have to think of the 19 Saudi terrorists on a mission in September 9th, 2001 to destroy the Twin Towers. And the story of Christian mission has its own dark chapters as well, whether it's the 12th century crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, or in much more recent times and much closer to home, the heartbreaking tragedy of the residential schools. So much so that it's actually quite common, especially among the younger generation, To begin to think of missional activity, especially cross-cultural mission, in, in the light of or through the lens of colonialism, where cultures and people are not enhanced but destroyed, even dehumanized and exploited in the name of God. I understand that. I grew up in India until she got her independence in 1947, India was a British colony. And in school we used to learn about the East India Company, which was originally formed in order to develop trade in the Indian Ocean. But soon it seized control of large parts of the Indian subcontinent. They had a military army that was twice the size of the British Army. And eventually the company came to rule large parts of India, both militarily and administratively. Exploitation was definitely their agenda now all of this forces a question upon us is there a way that mission in the context of christian faith can be good necessary and even beautiful now it is an important question for us to look at because in this series that we're in right now living on mission there's a very definite global dimension to it a cross-cultural dimension to it and if we don't have a positive answer to that question not only are we not likely to be involved in living on mission globally we might even actively oppose it so in a sense that's my mission today to be able to build an a case for the statement that mission in the context of faith in jesus can be good positive and desirable and also an invitation to a life-changing adventure i want to begin with an analogy what if you were to well how would you react if i said to you we're all missionaries Really, even those of you who are here, or maybe listening to this who don't consider yourself to be Christ's followers. What do I mean by that? Well, think of the last time you read a really good book, uh, a book that was brilliantly written, insightful, enjoyable to read, held your attention, and it actually even imparted wisdom that changed some aspects of your life for the better. Now, what do you naturally do? You want to tell somebody else about that book. And you want to encourage them to buy it, read it. You might even buy a copy and give it to them. And wow, then you follow up and say, hey, did you read it? And if they say yes, then your next question was, what do you think of it? And if they say yes, your own enjoyment becomes complete, right? Now you can substitute your favorite restaurant, the technical gadget that you've just acquired, a vacation spot that you really enjoyed, But the principle is exactly the same. Whatever we have enjoyed, benefited from, or experienced positively, we naturally want to tell other people. And if possible, exhort them to experience it for themselves. In that sense, we're all missionaries, if you will. Now, apply that to a person's relationship with Jesus. If as a result of their personal relationship with Jesus, the vitality, the abundant life that Jesus promised spilled over to every dimension of their life, if they were rescued from the tyranny of religion, trying to please an angry or wrathful God, if they broke through to new abilities to forgive people because they themselves have been forgiven, if they have a sense of belonging both to God and to a community, not on the basis of what they do and their performance, but who they are, and added to all of that an abundance of purpose and meaning in this angst-filled world, if in fact they have experienced that, to then not want to communicate that to someone else and help them have that same relationship is actually a contradiction in terms. In fact, one could even be questioned, one could even question the legitimacy of our claim to love God and love people if we are not interested in this kind of mission in Jesus' name. Atheist Penn Gillett, who is a Las Vegas comedian and illusionist, uh, in a video log talking about a gracious Christian businessman who gave him a Bible to read once said this. And remember, this is an atheist saying this. I've always said that I don't respect people who do not proselytize because it would make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming to hit you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this eternal life is more important than that. In other words, mission, whether local or global, in Jesus' name is a logical and necessary outflow of our love for God and our love for people. Now there are some inescapable implications that flow from that in terms of how we do mission. Mission in Jesus' name also has to be done in Jesus' way. And one of the key elements for that is a phrase that I only recently began to think about called cultural humility. You're obviously familiar with a much appreciated and admired character quality of humility. We're drawn to humble people and we resist people who are not. But like me, perhaps you never heard that put together with the word cultural. What exactly is cultural humility and why is it important for us when it comes to doing Jesus' mission in Jesus' way? A very helpful starting point for that is what God said to his people Israel through one of their greatest prophets, Isaiah. But before I read that scripture for you, that's going to form the, uh, the anchor or core scripture for our ongoing um, meditations today, I want to give you some background. From their very inception, God's people, Israel, were intended to be on mission. By their own love for God, demonstrated in their obedience to his life-giving laws, and by their worship of him, that was radically different from the destructive, dehumanizing worship of the nations around them, they were supposed to reflect the beauty, the glory, and the grace, and the goodness of God to their surrounding nations so that they would be attracted to the worship of this God to embrace this lifestyle governed by his life-giving laws and become worshipers themselves. That was their mission. They were blessed in order to be a blessing. But Israel totally failed in this. The story of Israel in what we call the Old Testament is a record of their failure in this mission. They let the fact that they were chosen and blessed by God become a basis for their arrogance. That arrogance slowly hardened into actual positive hatred of those who were of different cultures. They were only thinking in terms of their judgment at their own exaltation. All of this Isaiah in his long prophecy in the first part of it confronts them with. But the second part of Isaiah, which is where our text is found today, shows us that while Israel had failed, God had not abandoned his mission for them. And Isaiah talks about what God was gonna do through a fresh revelation of his own glory and his own beauty to revive his own people Israel so that they would recommit themselves to this vision and by this life of obedience and worship, Fulfill their mission to draw the other nations to the worship of God. To become one worshipping blessed community that would be for their benefit. That's the background to these verses from Isaiah chapter 60 that I want to read for you. Excerpts from the first seven verses. Arise, shine for your light has come. This is God through Isaiah speaking to Israel. And the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darknesses over the peoples, which is a word meaning the nations. But the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. The wealth of the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come, bearing gold and incense, and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. Now at first sight you may say, well look, what does this have to do with humility? It seems to be the opposite. doesn't it say that the wealth of the seas will come to you and the riches of the nations will be brought to you. That sounds like the East India Company in India all over again exploiting the nations for their wealth. But we need to take a little bit of a closer look. Notice what it says there. The riches of the nations will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar. In other words, the riches of the nations will not come to fatten the purses of Israel as it were, but as an act of worship to Israel's God and God will accept their worship and they will become part of that worshiping community. Secondly, notice what he says, I will adorn my glorious temple. In other words, the riches of the nations coming in to become a wo- in the worship of Israel's God, which will be accepted, will also end up beautifying Israel's own worship. So, as they bless the nations, because they themselves are blessed by God, they in turn, in return, will be blessed even more. Recognizing this is the essence of cultural humility in doing the work of Jesus' cross cultural mission. Now, Ultimately, this promise of Isaiah took a huge step forward to its fulfillment when God revealed his beauty and glory, in best of all, in the person of Jesus himself. And so the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the birth of the church, and the sending out of the church in mission to the Gentile world, we see this prophecy of Isaiah taking a huge step forward. And that's where you and I are today. We are part of that outward mission of that church. So what does cultural humility look like as we continue to engage in global mission? We need to go back and take a look at that phrase, the riches of the nation again. In, in materialistic North America, we almost always think of riches m- materially. But wh- what if the riches of the nation, in fact, most of the majority world is not particularly rich compared to us here in North America. But what if the riches had to do with cultural riches? I mean the various nations of the world form a rich tapestry of cultural diversity and when the life of Jesus is injected into these different cultures and his abundant life and vitality flows into them he changes, transforms and beautifies and enhances those cultures as a result of which those cultures have fresh new ways of worshipping Jesus which then come back to bless us from a different culture. I think of my own life I grew up in India. Uh, I spoke Tamil, which was my mother tongue. I spoke Hindi, which was the lingua franca of that country living in North India. But I also was um, sent to an English-speaking school. So by the time of five, I was uh, fluent in all three languages, but mostly in English and in Hindi, because that's where I lived uh, amongst the people, Hindi-speaking people. Like all teenagers, I loved to listen to popular music, both English music and Hindi music. And most of the Hindi music came from, from the movies. Today, at the age of 78, I don't listen to a lot of popular music. But you know what? I still listen to those old Hindi movie songs. Why is that? Because there are unique, almost untranslatable phrases in that language that are used in the songs to express the full gamut of human emotion. And it's like savoring the aftertaste of some rich food drink I love to roll those phrases over in my mind it's nostalgic obviously but it's also at this very moment something enjoyable it keeps connecting me with my identity and with my origins but then that's my culture then I became a Christ follower and I began to listen to some worship songs in the Hindi language and I have to say to you even though I knew many of the Western hymns learning new Christian worship songs in Hindi, with its own unique turn of phrase and metaphor, enriched my worship. And my only regret, looking back upon that phase of my life 60 years ago, was that I didn't learn more worship songs in the Hindi language. This is a very small example of how Christ enhances culture and gives fresh insights that then bless other people of different cultures let me tease this out a little bit further what does that look like on the ground for example in doing cross-cultural m- mission global mission in Jesus name it means that as part of our discipleship of the nations we don't just simply take western Christian music set it to the same tune but simply translate the words into a local language there's nothing wrong with that I learned many hymns like that but it also means encouraging and discipling local poets, local songwriters, to write songs of worship in their own language, set it to their own music, with their own instruments, and begin to worship Jesus that way. I remember when I spoke at Urbanus uh, 12 or 13 years ago. Every night, I just loved the worship time, because each night we were led to a different kind of worship, Middle Eastern music, Cuban music, Indian music, Far East Oriental music, African music, and I just loved each one of those. They allowed us to express our love for Jesus in ways that we would not have done just in our own language. It also means, for example, that in worship settings in these places, we wouldn't automatically reproduce what is familiar to us, build churches with pews, with pianos and organs, or maybe in these days, guitars and um, drums and whatnot. We would respect the local ways in which they worship. In India, very often, Christians would sit on the ground, shoes taken and left outside, so they come barefoot as an act of respect and honor to God. They would sit in a circle, not in lines. The musician would be a single harmonium, which is kind of an adapted piano-accordion hybrid. And they would not sing in four-part harmony. They would all sing in unison or sometimes in antiphonal singing. Male singing something, female singing in response, or one half singing one way, another half singing another way. Very different to us and yet rich, so rich in its own ways. And whenever I've been able to experience those, I have sensed that for myself. Those are some examples of what cultural humility would look like in doing cross-cultural mission on the ground. Now how about at an individual level? (laughs) Uh, A couple from our congregation at Rexdale, some of you would know them, who have served in Africa for a long time, told me this story. In the early years, they would keep hearing about this particular international worker. And the local people would keep saying, oh, he loved us, he loved us, he loved us. And so finally, my friends asked them, how do you know that this missionary loved you? You will never guess the answer. You know what the answer was? Because he borrowed money from us. Isn't that interesting? You see, cultural arrogance in cross-cultural mission says, we have the money, we have the resources, which may be true. And therefore, we know the best way, our ways are right. We get to make the decisions. Cultural humility borrows money. Because it's a way of saying, I depend upon you as much as you depend upon me. I need you as much as you need me. What I have to give to you is to enrich you, not to exploit you, so that you can come back and then enrich me with new insights that you have into the God that I love and and worship. So now you're getting a little bit of an understanding of what, global, uh, what cultural humility looks like when it comes to doing cross-cultural mission, Jesus' way. Now, when it is done in this way, what can we expect in terms of results? I want to tell you a little bit about my own story. I heard the gospel for the first time in the home of a Canadian missionary named John Tape. He was the Central Asia Director of Youth for Christ and he was based in the city of New Delhi. The thing that struck me most in looking back upon his life was this cultural humility. Not that he ever spoke about it in those terms and I would not have been able to identify it but with all this insight that I now have looking back upon it, that's what he exemplified. And there are at least three ways in which he showed that that come to my mind. First of all, he loved Indian food and food is a huge part of a local culture. Uh, Tandoori chicken was his favorite. By the way, that's what turned me from being a vegetarian for 20 years into a non-vegetarian, tandoori chicken. Secondly, every Monday night, there was a a, a youth group meeting. so That was all, all the source of my initial growth as a Christian. But he didn't lead it. He didn't do the teaching. That was all left to a local Indian leader whom he mentored and discipled behind the scenes. But perhaps most remarkable of all was when we made our first trip to a summer camp. He traveled with us on train. And he, as a expat, he was entitled to travel first class on these trains. But he chose to travel with the rest of us in third class. And third class was several orders of magnitude low on the scale of sanitation and comfort. You know why he did it? Not just because he loved to be with us, which was so evident. But by saving money by going third class instead the first class, He was able to use that money to bring along two Indian workers with him who otherwise would not have had the resources to come to the conference. That's what I remember about this man. He did global mission in Jesus' way. And the results in my life, (laughs) I can cry now if I think of it. Part Part of preparing this message has been reliving with joy these stories in my own life. The invasion of Jesus' abundant life into my life rescued me from meaningless religion, including Christianity as a religion. The resurrected king has continued to resurrect me, as the songwriters say, so that 60 years later, I'm still continuing to experience the vitality of Jesus. Slowly, I began to learn about the inner workings of my heart. I began to be introduced to the, to, to the emotional side of my life, something that we didn't talk about very much in our family going up in that culture. I learned about how emotions really drive all of our life and how important it was to be discipled and to bring that under Christ's control. I learned about the tendency of our heart to make idols. And by the way, idols are not literal, literal graven idols, but they are anything that we substitute in the place of God, taking something that is good and making God out of it. I learned to study God's word And that studying of that God's word, which has continued unabated for 55 years since that time, has continued to give me wisdom, wisdom in my marriage, wisdom in parenting, wisdom when it comes to at work, wisdom when it comes to handling my time, handling my finances. It introduced me to a Christian community to which I became accountable. People who had the right to confront me, challenge me, watch over me, shepherd my soul, to whom I was accountable like no other community. All of this, all of this was a result of someone, John Tape, and others bringing Jesus and enhancing me where I'm at. But remember what that passage in Isaiah said? As a result of the nations worshiping Jesus, Israel's own worship would be enhanced. That happened in this relationship too. Later on, John came back to Canada. I came and settled in Toronto. And John had me come and speak in his church. <laughs> an Indian speaking to Westerners in this church. The fruit of his cross-cultural mission investment in my life was now coming back to bless his congregation. Many years after that, I met him at an airport right here in Toronto airport one day having breakfast. And he opened up to me about his life growing up as a young man. The very difficult uh, parenting experiences that he went through. Here now, I was being allowed to be his pastor. Decades after he came to introduce me to Jesus and during the last years of his life as he was slowly moving to promotion to glory my wife Shamila and I would at least once a month or two every two months talk to him and he would say that my greatest joy in my life is to be able to hear your voices speak to me and we would get a chance to pray with him and bless him see all of our enhancement was now coming back to bless him exactly as what Isaiah said and I had the privilege in 2019 of doing his funeral in Calgary. Now that is an adventure that I'm sure you would want to be part of. Why would anyone want to miss out on that? Have you been tracking with me? Hopefully some of the negative connotations of global mission have begun to loosen their grip a little bit. Hopefully to the point where you're saying, okay, I get it, what do I do next, what do I do? So it's time for me to shift focus and Vijay is so fond of saying time to land the plane. Don't be intimidated by the size and scope of the global task. Start with one. That's how I started. In 1982, years after I became a pastor, one of my friends from the church was called by God to go to Indonesia. He and I communicated regularly and I started praying for him. My heart got connected to his cause. I started building a mental relationship with the people that were individuals whom I would never know, 6,000 miles away from me, but through him. The next year, three more of my friends from that search went to different parts of the country, Africa, Ecuador, Philippines. By 1986, I met, was able to make my own first trip overseas to speak to international workers at their conference. And so that initial first step has continued now for 41 years where to the point right now I have the joy of being involved in the light of eight international worker couples and four singles, 20 people that are working in different parts of the world. So start somewhere. The well is part of one of 400 different churches in the Christian Mystery Alliance in Canada. Between them they support about 200 international workers who are seeking to incarnate Jesus in their cultures and bless them in Jesus' name. Specifically at the well, we are connected with, way, with the Kennedys in Tajikistan and with Lizette Labois in Guinea. So here are some very specific things, steps you can do. Sign up for their prayers and begin to pray regularly. Start with one, but persevere. Communicate with them regularly where you can. Today, technology has made face-to-face communication so easy and instantaneous And free and that kind of face-to-face involvement on a regular basis is only going to increase your interest and your passion and when they happen to be home as the Kennedys have been this past year if possible spend time with them have them over in your home connect with them over a cup of coffee listen to their hearts and if possible visit them on site we've had opportunities I think in this church both to make short-term mission trips to Guinea and Uh, I think our youth went a couple of times to Tajikistan. So if there are opportunities like that, that makes sense for you. Or just on your own, a vacation with a purpose, as some people used to call it. And then give generously towards their support and work. Vijay has recently introduced us to the fact that this year we have an ambitious goal of increasing our overall giving by 20%. And of course 10% of our total giving goes every year to a global advance, to the Great Commission. And this in addition to the money that is raised during our February on-mission week, where even the kids get involved in their 30-minute market. Act, start, and you will find the Holy Spirit beginning to act with you. Now, having begun, what's going to keep you motivated? What is it that has kept me at this for 41 years? Not just the understanding that I've unpacked for you today, but more than that. What's, what's the biggest motivation? Like in every other dimension of our Christian life, like in every other commandment of God, God doesn't need you, he doesn't need me to accomplish his global agendas. Therefore, if he's asking us, if he's inviting us to be involved, it must be for your good and for my good. And here are at least three ways in which I've experienced that in my life, and your, the details will be different for you, but the principle is still the same. First and foremost, my participation and engagement in the Great Commission through the lives of these people in the way in which I got started that I've just explained to you has contributed to my growth. I have got a larger picture of God as a result of this because I've seen God act miraculously in those cross-cultural settings in ways that I wouldn't have got to see Him right here. So it expands my picture of the greatness of God. Not only that, I get to see the power of Jesus or hear stories about the power of Jesus in the lives not only of our international workers but some of the local Christ followers in building tremendous capacity to accept hardship and suffering of the kind that you and I don't have to experience here. And as far as the international workers themselves, who have now become my dear friends, to see them persevere over the long haul, face difficulties away from home and family for so long, sometimes in very lonely situations as well, sometimes working for years without any visible fruit. You know, what does that do for me? It keeps me on track here in my faith journey to God. So both expanding my view of the greatness of God in terms of the miraculous and the equally important greatness of God in building perseverance and strength and and ongoing commitment to my own pursuit of God. So growth is one, clear, clear motivation, personal growth. Secondly, joy, which is something that is in great short supply in our nation. Eugene Peterson said this so powerfully. He said, we try to get joy through entertainment. We pay someone to make jokes, tell stories, perform dramatic actions, sing songs. We buy the vitality of another's imagination to divert and enliven our own poor lives. The enormous entertainment industry in our land is a sign of the depletion of joy in our culture. Society is a bored, gluttonous king employing a court jester to divert him after an overindulgent meal. But that kind of joy never penetrates our lives, never changes our basic constitution. The effects are extremely temporary, and when we run out of money, the joy trickles away. Joy cannot be commanded, purchased, or arranged. Joy is not an escape from boredom, but a plunge by faith into God's work. And I say that again? Joy is not an escape from boredom, but a plunge by faith into God's work. And to, to, to show you how true it is on a micro scale as well. This is, anyone can write eloquently, but does it work? I remember a lady in our congregation, that my wife Sham used to disciple. At that time, her marriage was having all kinds of difficulties. Two of her children were not walking with God. She came from a difficult family growing up. And on one occasion, she said to Sham, Sham, the only time I experience joy in my life is when I'm praying for. And she mentioned the name of a couple from our church who were working as cross-cultural workers in a very difficult setting. Personal growth, joy, and thirdly, blessing. Remember? Isaiah's promise that when we bless the nations by introducing them to Jesus, their own culture is enriched and enhanced. Their cultural wealth comes back and enriches our own worship. That's the blessing cycle coming full stream ahead, full stream back to us. And so personal growth, joy, and thirdly, this kind of blessing. I began by introducing you to Greta Thunberg at 15. Wind the clock back seven years even before when she was eight years old listen to this when she was eight years old Greta learned about climate change but was shocked that really nobody seemed to be taking the issue seriously she began to worry about her future's uncertainty with temperatures increasing glaciers melting bushfires droughts floods and sea levels rising three years later she became depressed and let- lethargic stopped going to school stopped talking and even stopped eating her life was on a downward spiral right on Twitter, she described how before she started her climate campaign, she had no friends, no energy, and never spoke to anyone. I mean, that would be a, a recipe for disaster. Then look what happened. But as she started speaking to her parents about her fears and showing them videos, reports, and photos, she realized she could make a positive impact on the world. Her mission completely transformed her life. Now, if that can happen with that mission, mission important or otherwise is not the question, what do you think involvement in Jesus' mission can do for you in terms of blessing and turning around your life. No wonder we have called this series an invitation to a life-transforming adventure. As I was thinking about how to draw this whole message to a close, my mind went back to a statement that I read somewhere. It was first written almost 100 years ago, though the specific numbers were different. Most people die at 21, only to be buried at 81 most people die at 21 only to be buried at 81 so listen I want to invite you to a very specific focus challenge While it applies for all of us I want to specifically invite everyone here who's listening to me and if you're watching this online video you can do it in the quietness of your living room I want you to come to the front I want you to bow down and I want you to join me in this declaration never That will not be true of me. I'll take my cue from the Greta Thunberg of this world, only on a mission far more significant. I've been blessed in my relationship with Jesus to be a blessing. And in working out that destiny, I choose to step into a life of adventure, continual growth, joy, and blessing. The choice is yours.